0: Our passage this evening is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. We're continuing through verses 11 through 22, which are really one cohesive unit in the rich theological high point of the epistle. And we're jumping back in here as Paul explains how our unity in Christ is as a church, as a family, and as a temple. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 14 through 18. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. For he, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, the 21st century, for better or for worse, often calls to mind progress and high tech, medical procedures once hardly imaginable or commonplace now. High-tech smartphones and electric cars are such precision machines that even the jack-of-all-trades types, with a garage full of tools and a knack for fixing things, is going to call a specialist and make an appointment before popping the hood. And you can't even be sure anymore if you do pop the hood that there will even be an engine in there. So while 21st century technology brings with it its own set of challenges, we can at least respect that there is some degree of legitimate forward progress going on in medical and technological fields. When it comes to 21st century theology, though, progress is not always progress. The broadly evangelical world has mostly veered from the best practices of the historic church when it comes to fine-tuning the ways that we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the system of faith passed down to us from the prophets and the apostles and Christ himself. Historically, when the church has been faced with false teachings from age to age, it has huddled up and hashed out better ways to clearly articulate the faith, not to change it, but to preserve it. The evangelical world, though, has struggled to appropriately prioritize two good things, guarding the faith and evangelizing a world increasingly unfamiliar with the Bible. So instead of progressing toward a full-bodied theology, simply focused on Christ, but robustly teaching Jesus, as in the Great Commission, all that I have commanded you, the broadly evangelical world has prioritized a simplistic gospel. And so this evening, I think it appropriate as we dive back into this theologically rich high point of Ephesians to group the flow of thought in our passage with three points, if you will, these three subheadings I'll introduce with common evangelical phrases that are quite popular and kind of helpful to think about if you already know the gospel well, and yet these phrases are also quite simplistic and potentially problematic, for those who are perhaps being exposed to the faith for the first time or who don't have a strong theological foundation. We'll look at, first, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Second, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And third, what is God's will for my life? There are plenty of other evangelical bumper sticker-like phrases out there, which I'm sure many of us have come in contact with, or perhaps even used ourselves. But these three will fit well into Paul's flow of thought here. So, where was Paul's flow of thought when we left off? Paul had just prompted us, his his mostly Gentile audience that is, to recall the incalculable wall of separation that once existed between them and the Old Testament citizens of the kingdom of God the gentiles lived as if on a different plane of existence from the jews the gentiles were of course made in the image of god and designed with an innate moral compass and yet with no definitive understanding like the jews of why they as well as those who do not know christ today had a conscience bound understanding that we ought to be moral that we ought to thank be thankful to our creator and we ought to long to fulfill some purpose greater than the rules of the animal kingdom or the circle of life. Even without the oracles of God and his special presence with his people in hope of redemption and the coming Messiah, Gentiles still yearned, as we all do, for something more than just to be entertained, more than just to be superficially happy, more than just being healthy or earning a retirement. God has never let the Gentiles go about their lives without making them presuppose with every breath that this life is something special, that mankind is something unparalleled among all of the creatures of the earth. There's just such a huge gap between us and all other creatures to man who who struggle like no other creature with what we ought to be, as opposed to just accepting what is. Mankind is loftier for some reason than the rest of the creatures, and yet Gentiles fumbled in the dark, knowing only the guilt of falling short and a sense of what we're made for, merely tasting a bit of joy in living relatively moral-ish lives, finding some respite from the unanswered big questions and family and friends and meals, and yet never really having the whole picture or redemption. But now for both Jew and Gentile, verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here, Paul begins to set up for us just how deep this theological rabbit hole of new creation goes. And he does so by stressing the massive hostility previously at work between Jew and Gentile. Because the purification laws from Israel's side were only part of the picture. The Greco-Roman side had its own laws which made life quite inhospitable and tended to foster anti-Jewish attitudes. And of course, similar sentiments have inexplicably rippled throughout history, ranking anti-Semitism up there with Christian persecution Racism and human trafficking as topping mankind's list of heinous inhumanities. Indeed, there was no thing that could bridge the gap between God's people and the Gentiles, but there was someone who could make peace. If you've ever happened to be asked by a Christian friend, then when deciding where to live or which career path to take, if you're ever asked, What would Jesus do? You might drive some deeper thought into that conversation by replying whimsically, lovingly, not rudely, you're right. I should unite all of mankind into one new human race that I myself might quell its hostility and myself be its peace. The point here is plain that what would Jesus do as an an unqualified phrase can only call us to emulate Jesus as a moral leader. And, And not only that, if we only look at it that way, Jesus obeyed the Old Covenant purification laws in order to fulfill and abrogate them. So what are we even talking about when we ask someone, what would Jesus do? It has to be qualified, or it's shallow and confusing. And I don't mean that to be a drag. If you like to wear your WWJD ankle bracelet, and if your theology is robust, and for you that means something closer to Paul's statement, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, more power to you go for it and wear that bracelet for paul here though what jesus would and could and did do was bring all the promises of the previous covenant administrations into their complete fulfillment so that all the promises of god find their yes in him and through him therefore we utter our amen to god for his glory Christ, then, is the sum total of all of God's blessings and grace and peace for his church. He is, first of all, our peace horizontally, that is, with one another. We see that here in verses 14 to 15, and then also spilling into next week in verse 19, where Paul will continue by saying, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But Christ is also our peace vertically with God. And we'll see that in verses 16 and 17. And in Psalm 72, we read, In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. In Micah 5, and he shall be their peace. Scripture also speaks all over the place metaphorically of all that Christ is to us in this way. In 1 Corinthians alone, Christ is wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the church's foundation, the rock and its head, and he is the resurrection firstfruits of those who belong to him. Paul continues in verse 14. Christ has made Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility or enmity. The stress here is on the enmity between Jews and Greeks through the separation provisions of the law. So what's amazing is that Christ's work didn't just make it possible for Jew and Gentile to shake hands and be cool or to play nice together. That still would have been something impressive. Instead, the two are unified in one corporate body. As verse 16 says, He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So that, in verse 18, through him, we may both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this adds some much-needed depth to our second question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It shakes the individualist mindset where each of us is independently responsible for our own daily devotions, our individual spiritual walk, or for finding out my individual gifts. And especially for church hopping until I find the one that really fits me. Or worse yet, not going to church at all because it's just not my vibe, you know? I I have a personal relationship with Jesus that I keep to myself. No. So a distinctive element of this new person is that we are a body with simultaneously personal and corporate elements by nature. And all of this is a lot like Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then skipping down some, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Paul goes on in verse 15 in our passage here to explain that Jesus did this by abolishing or invalidating the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, as we've touched on, the commandments Christ invalidated were teachings of purity and separation where God very intentionally kept Jew from Gentile apart. And Colossians 2 expounds on this a bit more by telling us that they were lumped in, these, these uh, provision laws were, were lumped in with the demands of the theocratic and ceremonial laws that he canceled or abrogated by nailing them to the cross. It's interesting how those things which were once good, in a sense, in the Old Covenant have absolutely no place in the New Covenant. And so trying to stick with them ends up being worldly wisdom and not Christ. There is no Christ plus, as Reverend Tedrick emphasized when he preached for us last month. Living by shadows, when the substance has come, is not just having a lesser version of the promises— as if Orthodox Jews today share the same religion we do, just just without Jesus. Living by shadows shows that what was held to before was fundamentally never really grasped. You may have seen a a clip of the one 21st century high-tech medical advancement where loved ones of someone with colorblindness all chip in and buy them those glasses that let you see color for the first time. And when they put them on, they're overwhelmed with the beauty Of creation, because they can hardly believe what has surrounded them their whole lives, which they've never perceived. There's no way to unsee the truth of Christ once you've grasped it. Or imagine a World War II vet and his wife, they're they're writing letters back and forth, and when he returns, rather than embrace one another, one says, I have fallen so much more in love with you now. I, I prefer to continue our relationship just with these letters those letters would not be special. They would be meaningless. They would represent a betrayal, a misunderstanding. One party wants something that was, it was never even a real relationship. And so Paul speaks of our personal relationship with Jesus in a similar way. He is the substance. Now, these purity laws were about separation from the world, and they were a unique redemptive historical glimpse of the final judgment Meredith Klein called these intrusion ethics, where a type of the final judgment was intruding into that old covenant age. But those in Christ are not of that age. They are of a better administration of the covenant of grace, and those who don't know Christ now or yet are in a window of grace where they might have their eyes open to trust Christ before the great Lord's day. And indeed, at that time, Those who remain without Christ to the end will want to call on the mountains to fall on them to shield them from the wrath of the Lamb. For the Hebrew Christians in the first century, to reject Gentile Christians or or vice versa was to reject one's own body and one's own God who made the two one new person. In a sense, to not acknowledge this, this individual and corporate nature of the church is to reject the new covenant altogether, really. It's why 1 John made clear, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, Jew or Gentile, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. So for those who might still be influenced by the old covenant to pray like David for God to break the teeth of his enemies in their mouths, Or like James and John, who earnestly believed Jesus might have wanted them to call down fire from heaven and consume their enemies, Jesus rebukes this mindset. Instead, we are called to pray for our enemies. And we've jumped ahead some to verse 16 and 18, but we're going to go back now to verse 15, where Paul goes on to say that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace So, if you want to know what is the will of God for my life, Paul won't give you advice on how to read tea leaves or interpret your prayer feelings, except that you should listen to your conscience if one of your choices is clearly detailed in Scripture as immoral. Instead, he orients us to to the work of peace of Christ accomplished so that we might walk in line with what he has already achieved. It's an objective will. One unambiguous aspect of God's will for your life is for sure to be at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ but also as Dr. Estelle providentially read for us this morning from Romans 12 to have a posture toward the world where we repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as depends on you live peaceably with all Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. When Paul approaches the end of this book and exhorts us to wear The whole armor of God, a crucial aspect of that heavenly armor, is the shoes for your feet, which is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So, there is this dual aspect of living out that peace. Christ has already objectively accomplished it on the cross by abolishing the dividing wall of enmity between Jew and Gentile believers— washing us clean of our debt to him and thereby removing the enmity that God has with us and our sin. So there's only one Christ and Savior, and we are not called to emulate everything Jesus would do. It's enough for us to be like him, individually having a personal relationship with Christ by laying down our gifts to God. If we first find that we need to go And be reconciled to our brother or sister in Christ. And also corporately having a relationship with God as one new man in one church, proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation to every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. Some supporting and some sending, some going. Remembering that he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. And also knowing that as we fulfill this simple, but not simplistic mission, he is with us always to the end of the age as we teach all that he has taught us. Because he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Amen. Let's pray.